We uh, return this morning to Genesis chapter 49, picking up where we left off in this, what we have called the Testament of Jacob, being uh, careful not necessarily to call it his blessing of the sons, since uh, uh, some, if not much, of what he says sounds like something, anything really, other than a blessing. Last week he had some things to say about Reuben and to him that were absolutely terrible. The effects of Reuben's sins coming home to roost. Today Jacob will even use the word cursed with regard to another two sons. But the wonder of it all will be to see how God's amazing grace turns even curses into blessings. By the way, another amazing thing about this passage, before we go to it, is that Moses would record these words at all. You see, Moses is from the tribe of Levi, and what is going to be said about his tribe is not exactly flattering. Yet Moses, obedient to the Holy Spirit, writes them nonetheless. That same Spirit gives us grace to read and devour them, toward which end let us pray. Send him, we pray, our Father, your Spirit to open our ears, our hearts, to receive marvelous things from your law that he himself inspired to be written. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 49, beginning at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Now, the sense here is not merely that they're related or come from the same mother. Jacob means that these are two of a kind. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. I knew a couple of brothers like this or something like this years ago. Well, they hadn't killed any men or hamstrung any oxen, but they were mean, nasty brothers, just the same. They were twins. And they were one or two grade levels above me in high school. They seemed to relish taking turns tormenting me, coming up behind me and knocking the books out of my hands as I was walking down the hall, pushing me into a locker door and, and so on. Just plain mean. And like Simeon and Levi, these two seemed to feed off of each other's meanness and nastiness. I don't know what came of them since graduation. Can't help but wonder if they're in jail somewhere or maybe executives in some Chicago firm. Maybe Jacob wondered exactly what would become of these boys, of his sons, Simeon and Levi. Of course, he understood that there would be some terrible consequences for their sin, and those consequences would fall not only on them, but on their children and their children for generations to come as well. But I wonder when Jacob pictured their future in his mind's eye, what he saw. 
somehow I, I, I don't imagine that he anticipated all that we now know in hindsight about these tribes. But I get ahead of myself. What, what is all this talk about swords and violence, fierce anger and cruel wrath? What in the world is he talking about? What have these brothers done to earn such a name, such a reputation for themselves? Well, just like we could look back last week and see in Reuben's life the sinful act back in Genesis 35, so now with Simeon and Levi, we can also look back to see exactly what Jacob is talking about. You'll immediately remember them, the terrible events of Genesis 34. Jacob's having halted in pilgrimage outside the city of Shechem and therefore putting his own faith in jeopardy to say nothing of his children's. His daughter Dinah, full sister of Simeon and Levi, makes her way out among the people of that place. One thing leads to another, and Prince Shechem seizes her and lays with her. Of course, that was a humiliating thing. Humiliating for their sister and brothers, Simeon and Levi, are infuriated. The indifference of Jacob when he receives the news only lights their fires all the more and enrages them, and they decide to take justice into their own hands. And the fact that Shechem really was in love with Dinah, their sister, and wanted to marry her, as it turns out, was an ace in their pockets. And they played it. Well, they said to Shechem and his father, Well, we can't let you marry our sister unless you're circumcised. You and every male among you. Done, they said. And somehow they're able to convince the entire city. But a few days later, when the men are still sore, maybe at their sorest, the brothers of blood went and killed Every one of them. It was a shameless act of cruelty, of vicious violence carried out in the most despicable of ways, using religion, using a covenant sacrament as a means to duping these men to their deaths. At the time, you remember, Jacob was interested, as he always was or mostly was, in how the whole thing reflected on him. His worry was about how the fallout would affect him, who was now a stench in the nostrils of the place, of the men of that place, because of what his sons had done. Well, here at his deathbed, Jacob is perhaps a little more mature and can see the bigger picture. At any rate, God gives it to him to see the consequences will fall on the tribes of these men for their sin. The first consequences, the immediate consequences, are clearest seen by those who stood by the bed that day. Reuben, who had just been passed by as the oldest son, then forfeits the blessing to the next down the line. His sin with Bilhah, of course, took care of all that. So we would expect, naturally, that Jacob would then pass the blessing to the next son in line, to Simeon. But it would not be, nor to Levi. 
because of their sin, back there at Shechem, like Reuben, they had forfeited the blessing of their father. But there is more. Verse 7. They will be divided in Jacob. They will be scattered in Israel. And so it was. Remember what was it? Four centuries later, they come to the promised land. Though that land is divided up among the tribes, and that map you see in the back of some of your Bibles, there is no land for them, no consolidated place with borders and territory for Simeon and Levi. Where would the Levites live? In cities. And cities scattered among the tribes. Some 48 cities would become the dwelling places of Levi. And what of Simeon? His tribe would be, for the most part, sprinkled in among the tribe of Judah. Just as Jacob had prophesied from his deathbed, they were both scattered. Now it will be worth pausing here to take careful note of this fact. That sin has consequences. It has terrible consequences. The same lesson, just as clearly seen in the last verse with Reuben, is now seen here with Levi and Simeon. There were terrible consequences, and not just for those men, but even more magnified, in a sense, to the generations who followed after them. Let us never fail to reckon with this biblical truth, this terrible truth, That as a man sows, so also shall he reap. Levi and Simeon, they set themselves up for this. It was their reward for letting their anger and rage get the best of them. And there's another lesson. And we could spend the rest of the morning developing it. The fruit of unchecked uncontrolled anger. Over and again, the scripture warns us and warns us about being dominated by our anger and the terrible wake of damage, the carnage of broken relationships, of heartache and disobedience that follows a man or woman, even a Christian man or woman, who will not keep his anger, her temper under Control. Every church of every size has them at one time or another. Simeon's and Levi's angry people. We've all known people like that. People whose temper gets the best of them. Who then act and speak out of angry, bitter hearts. Of course, anger itself may not be sin. Even the scripture recognizes that there's such a thing as righteous anger. In your anger, do not sin, says the apostle. And Simeon and Levi would have defended their anger, no doubt, as righteous anger. In fact, they did. When Jacob whined at them, remember, about what their actions would mean for him, now they shot back with, should they treat our sister like a prostitute? 
They were merely defending their sister's honor, just simply exercising justice, they reasoned. But today's passage passes judgment on that and on them and shows that they were totally in the wrong in the way they handled or responded to this entire situation. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Scottish hymn writer George Matheson said, There are times when I do well to be angry, but I have often mistaken those times. We might all say the same of ourselves. Do we not all have some horrible memory of our own created by that time when our temper flew out of control, when we did not keep our anger and our hearts in check? May we all, looking at these brothers, mark carefully the terrible fruit that springs from a bitter root of anger left to scent its tap deep into the soil of your heart and kill it. Kill that seed before it grows. But there is yet another lesson to learn, and we begin to see it when we look beyond the, well, curse here that fell on Levi and Simeon to some other things that God will do and accomplish in these tribes. Look down the corridor now with me of biblical history and see what God's grace, what his truly amazing grace can do and does. Start with Levi. Who do you know in Scripture who was a Levite? Moses. Moses was a Levite, wasn't he? He had godly parents, Amram and Jochebed, and they were Levites. What do we know about Moses? Moses was a well-educated man, better educated really than most anyone, save perhaps Pharaoh himself. He at one time held a position of great power and prestige in Egypt. He had it all, really, and didn't want for anything. But he chose not to follow that path. Chose to give up the pleasures of sin. Writes the author of Hebrews, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And you better believe those were fantastic treasures. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Who else? Aaron. Aaron was a Levite, Moses' brother. He became the high priest in Israel. Aaron was set apart, says the scripture, to dedicate the most holy things. 
that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord and minister to him and pronounce blessings in his name forever. Phineas. Remember Phineas? The third high priest. And he served that post faithfully for 19 years. You'll remember Phineas best when you picture him with a spear in his hand. The people of God during his day had fallen woefully into sin, sexual immorality with the women of Moab. They drew, the women of Moab drew Israel into the sacrificing to their gods. They willingly went as well, of course. And as a result, God sent a terrible plague upon Israel that killed 24,000 of them. Now, one day in the plain sight of the people, you remember, one man brings a Midianite woman right to his dwelling place. And as they are in the chamber together, Phineas comes and drives them both through with a spear. And because of Phineas's act, God raised the plague and relented from his anger and turned and gave Phineas the promise of perpetual priesthood for his descendants. You may, by the way, find this an interesting footnote. That man that he drove through with the spear, his name was Zimri. He was a Simeonite. Ezra, another Levite, a paragon of strength and faithfulness. And the book that bears his name is recorded as faithful leadership, bringing back captives from exile in Persia to Canaan and establishing the work of God, the worship of God again. John the Baptist was a Levite. At the cost of his head, John preached the truth, but not before faithfully serving as one who made the way for the coming of Jesus, his Lord and ours, who had lavished John with this praise. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Imagine that being said of you by the Lord. In some, except for the tribe of Judah, no tribe contributed more distinguished men and leaders to Israel than Levi. Back to Levi in just a minute. What about the Simeonites? What becomes of them? Dispersed among Judah's territory. How do they fare? Well, while being basically absorbed by another tribe isn't exactly the most glorious thing, Think about the course of events in this history. From the beginning of the divided kingdom of Judah to the south and Israel to the north, and the apostasy that came to mark and mar the northern kingdom's life, Simeon was spared, was given grace to prosper for many years among Judah. Jump to the end of the divided kingdom, to 721 B.C. And you find Israel to the north being carried away into captivity with Assyria. But for another 130 years or so, 135 to be exact, 
Simeon continued to exist in Judah until, of course, judgment fell on Judah too, on the southern kingdom. It appears that Simeon's curse actually became something of a blessing. Now back to the Levites. Yes, they were spread into 48 cities with no territory of their own. It is true, but for what purpose? To serve as priests. In other words, this tribe, this this tribe of Levi, the sons of Levi, the man of wrath and anger, the man who by his temper called down his father upon called down the curses of his father upon his anger. The sons of this man become the pastors in the synagogues of Israel until the Babylonian captivity. The sons of the man of anger and blood, and for that reason dispersed, as it were, to the four winds, go with the truth of God on their lips to be ministers to the people. That, my friends, is no small honor. Those who are said to have no portion in the land found, as the scripture says, that the Lord himself was their portion. What is all of this? Well, I will tell you what it is. It is God's grace. It is God's amazing grace. Grace that turns curses into blessings. Grace that takes scoundrels and makes of them saints. That takes men and women, boys and girls who are unfit for God's kingdom and makes of them kings and queens in it. Or as the case may be, ministers. John Newton, whose famous hymn gave title to the sermon this morning and will be our words in the Lord's Supper in a few moments, was a man whose life was at one time that of a blasphemer, a a man of deep cruelty as well. Ask any man on the ships on which he sailed whether they could imagine Newton as a preacher and evangelist and poet, and they would have laughed you overboard. But God's amazing grace can take him from the prow of a slaver's ship to the pulpit in Christ's church. We can multiply the examples. John Bunyan was a foul-mouthed drunkard, profane as the day is long, a hater of God's laws, until God's amazing grace made of him a faithful preacher and prisoner for the gospel, and a writer of the immortal Pilgrim's Progress that has left its indelible and growing mark on the church and on the world. Martin Luther, a man diligent to the letter in Rome's system of salvation by works, becomes the mouthpiece of the gospel that turns the world upside down again. And has left us in his debt forever. You and I, humanly speaking. Or go back to Augustine, a young man given over to his sin and corruption who once prayed, Lord, give me chastity 
just don't give it to me yet. Who grieved his mother, Monica, who cried rivers of tears in prayer for her son, her lost and immoral son. Even Augustine becomes so faithful a servant of the Lord, minister and father in the church, that all these centuries later we should still use a prayer of his as our very own just a few moments ago in the confession of our sin. And all these must stand, of course, in the tradition of one named Saul, who breathed out death against God's people, who pursued them with might and main to the grave, with unalloyed hatred of Christ, who would have been the church's undoing if he could, but became, by God's amazing grace, the champion of truth, suffering willingly with his Lord, And walking as a colossus across the ages in the church and in the world, his name now virtually synonymous with the Christian faith, known to all when we simply say, the Apostle. God's grace, his amazing grace, is still making saints out of scoundrels. And this sanctuary is filled with the prime examples. Every one of us was dead in our sins and trespasses, lost forever in the darkness and glad to be there, content to stay in the darkness were it not for the grace of God that found us under that curse and turned that curse into blessing. How has he done this? Paul tells us in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us, to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. But I am wicked, you say, and I come from a long line of wicked people, one generation after another. That may well be, but God's grace is stronger than your sin. And God's grace breaks curses in families and turns them into blessings for you and for your children after you. But you you have no idea what I've done, you say, and I don't. But God does. And for that matter, he knew what Paul had done. Why do you persecute me, Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. And he knows what crimes Augustine had done, and Bunyan, and Newton, the horrific crimes against God and against man. And the same grace that broke into their lives with blessing can break into yours and turn your curse into blessing, your sin into obedient 
rejoicing. If you can hear my voice right now, it is not too late. Turn to him now and plead that amazing grace that can save a wretch like you. For it has saved a wretch like me. But I'm a rough man, you say. God's grace will tame you. I'm a sinful woman. God's grace will make you holy. I'm ignorant, you say. God's grace will teach you. But I'm infatuated with my sin. God's grace will light the flames of new affections in your heart. For where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. There is a reason that we call this grace amazing. Because it is. It truly is. Look around this room and see how amazing grace must be. Now, many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom God has made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. If you hear us boast, and may it be that you do, it must be in the Lord. For he is the only legitimate boast we have in the Lord and in his amazing grace. Amen.